Hi there, and welcome back to Unknown Friends. This is my weekly book review podcast, and today you're listening to Season 2, Episode 35. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my plays at my website, kittywayneproductions.com. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while now, and you're interested in getting access to bonus content while also partnering with me in the creation of the podcast, consider joining the Unknown Friends community on Patreon. If you pledge just $6 a month in support of the podcast, you receive access to monthly bonus episodes I share on a private Unknown Friends podcast feed. And if you're able to donate $12 a month, you not only access those bonus episodes, but you also get a coupon code for my website and a free copy of a book from every season of the podcast, starting with the current season. So I will actually send you a hard copy of one of my favorite books that I reviewed in season two, and I'll do the same again at the end of every future season. Now, there is a very short, special window of opportunity remaining for listeners who become $12 patrons before November, so literally just days left. Patrons who joined earlier this year received a free copy of Peace Like a River, which was my favorite book from season one of Unknown Friends. A fantastic book. I literally recommend it to everyone who asks me what they should read next. Well, I currently have just a few copies of Peace Like a River left that I can share with new patrons. So until the end of October, if you join the Unknown Friends community on Patreon as a $12 patron, you will receive a hard copy of Peace Like a River mailed to you for free. And then when season two closes, you'll also get your free book from season two and then from future seasons. So this month is your last chance to get a free copy of Peace Like a River from Season 1. If you're interested, just head to patreon.com slash unknownfriends, and you can read all the details there. But I just wanted to be sure to announce this on the podcast, since the offer will only be open for a few more days. All right, enough about Patreon. Let's talk about Narnia. So Prince Caspian is the second book in the Chronicles, according to publication order, and also according to the order in which Lewis wrote the books. Now, the second Narnia book C.S. Lewis began writing was actually The Magician's Nephew, which really serves as a prequel to all the other books, but it ended up being the last book Lewis finished writing, and the next to last book to be published in the series. It's a little complicated, but we'll talk more about The Magician's Nephew in its own episode. Suffice it to say, Lewis did not get very far in trying to write a prequel for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe before he set it aside and instead turned to writing a sequel, which was ultimately titled Prince Caspian, with the subtitle The Return to Narnia. So he wrote Prince Caspian fairly quickly. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as we discussed last week, was complete by the end of March 1949. And Lewis wrote Prince Caspian later that same year, finishing it after Christmas. 
and he actually kept writing Narnia books pretty quickly for a while. He completed The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and then The Horse and His Boy in the first several months of 1950. So ultimately, four of the seven chronicles were written before the first one was even published, since The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe wasn't released until October 1950. And then the other six books were released one a year for the next six years, so Prince Caspian was published in the fall of 1951. And by that time, Lewis had already finished writing yet another of the seven Narnian books, The Silver Chair. So uh, he stayed pretty well ahead of things with the writing of the Chronicles, with more than half of them written before the first even went to print. So Prince Caspian features the return to Narnia, obviously, of our four heroes and heroines from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. So it's a year after the events of the first book, and they're on their way back to boarding school at the end of the summer. And as they're sitting, waiting in the train station, they all four suddenly start to feel very strange. And before they know it, whether they like it or not, they are whisked away by magic and find themselves in another world. They think and hope that it is Narnia, where they traveled in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and where, in fact, they lived and reigned as kings and queens for quite a few years. Although when they returned to their own world, they found that no time at all had passed on Earth while they had been in Narnia. So they have again been whisked into Narnia, but they're not really sure where they are. They don't recognize anything. Well, long story short, I won't explain how they figure it all out, but they are indeed back in Narnia. But since Narnian time and Earth time are not synced, the four siblings discover that hundreds of years have gone by in Narnia since they left it last. Their reign is now practically ancient history to the current inhabitants of Narnia. In fact, they are hardly more than a legend at this point. So something like 10 generations ago, foreigners known as Telmarines came in and conquered the kingdom of Narnia, and the current ruler is a king named Miraz, who is a dreadful tyrant. He and his ancestors have done their best to annihilate the old inhabitants of Narnia, talking animals, dwarves, centaurs, and fawns, and giants, and any of these whom the Telmarines have failed to eliminate are now living in hiding. So Narnia is the land of Telmarines now, and even legends of the old days have been all but forgotten. So Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy find themselves in a vastly different Narnia than the one they once ruled. But what they soon learn is that a rebellion is underway, a rebellion of the old Narnians, the dwarves and talking beasts and all those creatures, against the new Narnians, the Telmarines, led by the tyrant Miraz. And the leader of the rebellion is an unlikely person, but truly the only person fit to lead such a rebellion. This person is Prince Caspian. Now, in some ways, we experience the storyline of this book 
out of order um, because we are experiencing it from the perspective of the Pevensey siblings. And they come onto the scenes in the middle of things, really. They get magically summoned into Narnia. They have to figure out first that they are indeed in Narnia. And then they eventually meet a dwarf named Trumpkin, who I'll talk more about. And he's the one who's able to explain to them, finally, what all has been going on since they left Narnia hundreds of years ago, according to Narnian time. So this is where we get introduced to the book's title character, Prince Caspian, and we learn his history and what's so special about him. So Prince Caspian is King Miraz's nephew, and is in fact the rightful heir to the throne of Narnia. And Caspian is not like his tyrannical uncle who hates old Narnia. Caspian has heard the legends of Aslan and talking animals and the four kings and queens who reigned centuries ago, and he loves these legends and wants to believe that they were true. They seem so good and exciting and inspiring to him that he wishes Narnia were still like it used to be. He wishes that Aslan would return, and he wishes he could really meet some of these legendary creatures and people, and that the old Narnians, if they really exist, could live in peace instead of in hiding. Well, in short, as Caspian gets a little older and his right to the throne becomes more undeniable, he ends up finding his life in danger from his usurping uncle, Miraz, and he has to flee the castle and hide out in the woods. And there, surprise, surprise, he meets some real, living, breathing old Narnians, dwarves, talking beasts, and the whole crowd. The legends are true. He is thrilled, and he determines to restore Narnia to its rightful inhabitants if he can. And the old Narnians, in their turn, decide to accept Caspian as their leader and help put him on the throne if they can, since that's his rightful place and they believe he would be a good ruler over Narnia. So Caspian and the creatures of old Narnia begin a revolution, fighting against Muraz and the Telmarine army, which, as you might guess, is rather an uneven fight. Things don't look good for Caspian and his little ragtag army, so at last he resorts to his final hope under the guidance of a good magician who is his mentor. Caspian attempts to use magic to summon help from the past. He's not sure what help exactly will respond to his summons, maybe Aslan himself or maybe the kings and queens of old. But Caspian has faith in the old stories and believes something good will come from the past to help him and the old Narnians. And that is how the Pevensey children got involved in this whole story to begin with. We finally learn that what whisked them back into Narnia at the start of the book was Caspian's summons for help. And so, of course, uh, once Trumpkin the dwarf, who has been explaining all this, tells the four siblings that Caspian has called for their aid, they are eager to help him and his little army. But unfortunately, <laughs> that is easier said than done. 
you will have to read the book for yourself to learn how Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy attempt to help Caspian and whether it succeeds. But suffice it to say, things do not play out as anyone expects. There's a difficult, bewildering journey for the Pevensies, first of all, and there's conflict to be overcome inside as well as outside the old Narnian camp, and negotiations and combat and treachery. And throughout, the question, is Aslan going to show up? How can he help restore old Narnia, and will he? So as you can tell, this is a new take on Narnia that Lewis gives us in Prince Caspian. The book bears a few surface resemblances to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, in that the four Pevensies are the main characters, again, and they are discovering a Narnia under the control of a tyrant and needing restoration. But the very fact that the Pevensies have been in Narnia before is perhaps the biggest thing that makes Prince Caspian so very different from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in fact. From their previous experience, they have certain expectations about Narnia and about Aslan and their own roles, and those expectations are mostly incorrect. Because as Aslan himself says in Prince Caspian, things never happen the same way twice. And so the Pevensies have to adjust to this new story and almost this new world that they hardly recognize. And that's a big part of what makes Prince Caspian so interesting, I think. Jonathan Rogers, in his book The World According to Narnia, which I mentioned last week, does a great job talking about the mythic qualities of this second book in the Narnian stories. It's not uncommon in fantasy stories to hear legends and myths about what the old days were like, but in Prince Caspian, when the Pevensey children find themselves back in Narnia, they realize that they are the old legends. They are the embodiment of the Narnian myths that most people in Narnia don't even believe anymore. That puts a different perspective on myth and on belief. Faith is a huge theme in Prince Caspian, uh, which Jonathan Rogers discusses very well, so I won't try to go into it deeply here. I'll just refer you to his book. But in brief, all the characters in Prince Caspian must confront doubt and the difficulty of faith at some point in the story. Caspian chooses to believe in the legends about old Narnia despite the disbelief of practically all the other Telmarines around him. And even the old Narnians themselves, who are kind of mythical creatures, and to Caspian's mind, prove the truth of the old legends, even they must battle disbelief after so many centuries of persecution. They personally weren't alive generations ago when good kings and queens reigned in Narnia and Aslan defeated the White Witch. So even the old Narnians must choose to have faith in Aslan and in the truth of the old stories. And then one step more, the Pevensey children, who are the truth 
of the old stories, who witnessed Aslan's power when they lived in Narnia before, even they must overcome doubts about Aslan's faithfulness. Because Aslan is not a tame lion, as the books say. He does not often do what you expect, and he does not often show up when you think he should. You must trust that he will indeed be there when and where you truly need him, and he will show you what you need to do if you're just willing to believe and obey him. This, of course, is C.S. Lewis teaching all kinds of Christian truths through these characters in the story of Prince Caspian, namely truths about walking by faith and not by sight. That is a, a central theme in this book, and again, Jonathan Rogers discusses it more thoroughly and articulately in his book than I can, uh, but that's just my very quick take on the theme of faith in Prince Caspian. And I guess, on a related note, one thing I will add is about Trumpkin, the dwarf who gives Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy the backstory about Caspian. Trumpkin is a really wonderful character, and though I always liked him, I have to say I appreciated him more than ever before on this latest reread of the book. And for the first time, it struck me how similar he is to another Lewis character, Mr. McPhee from That Hideous Strength, the last book in Lewis's space trilogy. Both of these characters are skeptics when it comes to the things of myth or anything supernatural, really. They are very practical, logical, and down-to-earth. And most importantly, they are absolutely committed to whatever they have decided, rationally, is worth being committed to. In other words, although they struggle to embrace the vulnerability of faith in what they cannot see, they are supremely faithful to what they can see. So they're imperfect characters, they have plenty of room to grow, but they're also deeply admirable for their faithfulness. So Trumpkin does not believe the old legends about Aslan and kings and queens, but he does believe that Caspian is the rightful king of Narnia now, and he's so dedicated to what he believes is his duty that he would give his life for Caspian, and even for what Caspian believes in, despite the fact that Trumpkin himself doesn't believe in what Caspian believes in. That's remarkable. Trumpkin is a shining example of faithfulness, and I love him for that, just like I love Mr. McPhee for the same character quality in That Hideous Strength. And honestly, it makes me ponder the nature of faith and faithfulness, and wonder if the two aren't so very different. Yes, Trumpkin eventually has to learn to trust in Aslan, but even so, he is essentially a good, noble character from the very beginning of the story. So perhaps his unconditional faithfulness to Caspian is itself a kind of faith, or at least a stepping stone on the path to faith. It's an active commitment and service 
to someone other than himself, despite his private misgivings. That, I think, is praiseworthy. Now, we have hit, I would say, the principal themes of the book, but there are a few isolated lines from Prince Caspian that have just always stuck with me, and I can't help but mention them before I wrap up this episode. Narnia has shaped the way I think in many ways, one being kind of a big picture sense. Um, The nobility of the characters inspired me as a kid. Their transformations challenged me. And their victories, with Aslan's help, through enormous trials, encouraged me and consistently pointed me toward God in my own life through my own trials. But Narnia also shaped the way I think in that it gave me words for some very specific truths that I might not have latched onto quite the same way if I didn't have language for it. C.S. Lewis has an amazing way with words. He knows how to capture ideas in simple, relatable, and yet somehow surprising language, memorable language that expresses perfectly what we've always felt but maybe never understood until we heard it put in just the right words. So there's there's a couple of specific lines like that in Prince Caspian that have found their way permanently into the files of my mind and have just become a part of how I think about the world around me. So the first one I want to mention comes from a specific incident in the book that might feel a little random in the moment, but it gives Lewis an opportunity to make really a profound observation about life. The Pevensey children and Trumpkin are traveling through the forest, and a bear comes upon them, and Trumpkin shoots it. And at first, the children are afraid it might have been a talking animal, you know, a a creature with a mind and soul. But Trumpkin assures them that no, it, it was definitely just a wild bear. He says that, sadly, many of the animals that used to be talking animals aren't anymore, and this is his explanation. He says, most of the beasts have gone enemy and gone dumb, but there are still some of the other kind left. And then a few minutes later, a thought occurs to Lucy, and she says to Susan, wouldn't it be dreadful if someday in our own world at home, men started going wild inside, like the animals here, and still looked like men, so that you'd never know which were which. And Susan says that's a horrible thought, and they don't talk about it anymore. But isn't that an interesting point Lewis is making? A a being with a soul can go enemy, or go wild, and that choice in some sense actually costs them their soulishness or their rationality. I think it's somewhat open to interpretation what exactly Lewis is saying here, but it's food for thought. Now, something that makes me unspeakably upset is what they did with this incident in the movie adaptation of Prince Caspian. There, the bear charges the children, Trumpkin shoots it, 
The children expressed fear that it might have been a talking bear, and rather than saying, most of the beasts have gone enemy and gone dumb, in the movie, Trumpkin instead says, you get treated like a dumb animal long enough, that's what you become. Oh, that makes my blood boil. It may seem like a small change, but in reality, it is a monumental perspective shift. That line completely twists what Lewis wrote. In fact, it's the opposite of what Lewis was saying here. C.S. Lewis did not believe that you're defined by the way other people treat you, but only by the way God treats you and the way you respond to God. The book makes it clear that it is our freedom and our individual responsibility to behave in a way that shapes our destiny whereas the movie makes individuals nothing but the victims of their circumstances. You get treated like a dumb animal long enough, that's what you become. How insulting and depressing. There's a lot of things about the Narnia movies, especially Prince Caspian and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that make me very angry. But this particular change also just shocked me, honestly, in a way that some of the other changes didn't. But enough about the movie. One other line from the book that I love and I have to quote for you comes from quite near the end of the story. This is a statement that honestly I think of pretty often. Um, it's, it's probably the quotation that comes to my mind more often than any other from Prince Caspian specifically. The context is Caspian being addressed by the great lion Aslan on their very first meeting. Aslan asks Caspian, do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? And Caspian responds, I I don't think I do, sir. I'm only a kid. To which Aslan replies, Good. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been a proof that you were not. Humility isn't necessarily the main theme of this book, but this is a little gem that C.S. Lewis offers us in the midst of everything else. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been a proof that you were not. I think of this line often when I start to consider myself quite capable of something or ready for some challenge. It's good to remind myself that I may well not be as ready as I think. And perhaps humility goes a lot farther than confidence in preparing us for challenges. So thank you to C.S. Lewis for this reminder that has lodged itself in my mental library for quite a few years now and helps me in moments when I need it. There are, of course, many, many gems from the Chronicles of Narnia like this, and this is just one of several from Prince Caspian alone, but unfortunately I do not have time to share each and every quotation from the book that I would like, so for today we will leave it at that. I know I'll be able to share more favorite lines from other books in the Chronicles as we continue to discuss them one by one. So I hope you enjoyed today's review of Prince Caspian, The Return to Narnia. 
As always, feel free to message me with your thoughts about this book or questions if you have any. You can always contact me on Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon, and those links are all in the episode description. If you're enjoying this series so far, be sure to tune in again next week for the third Chronicle of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This one's a lot of fun and introduces a new character into the series that you really cannot afford to miss, Eustace Clarence Scrub. Wonderful character. We will talk a lot about him next week, I'm sure. So thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thank you.